incentive clause, and we started our series, Together for Grace. And so the reason we said together for grace is grace is not the power to do as you please, it's the power to do as you should. So eat all, forget this keto stuff. I'm tired of hearing about this keto stuff. You just enjoy Bluebell to its fullest and live in the grace of God and the power of God. Go dip into some of that. How's that for you? <laughs> I know, I'm, I don't take, I'm not on the, my medicine, so. But listen, Philippians chapter 2 is a good hard word for us. And it's so timely in a transition that we're in. And it says this in the incentive clause, this is the title for it. It says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind or humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Get your eyes on those around you. That's what Paul's saying. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interest of others. So let's talk about the incentive clause. Let's talk about a little bit of cultural background here so that you understand and let's rewind it a little bit. There was a Greco-Roman culture at Philippi. And at Philippi, in this Greco-Roman culture, they would know something about humility. That's what Paul's talking about, having lowliness of mind. And we'll get to verse 5, which talks about have the attitude of humility that Christ did, which he came down from heaven to earth. So God came down. He initiated humility, not us. So in the Greco-Roman culture, you could be born as a slave. And if you were born as a slave in the Greco-Roman culture at Philippi, then you automatically had a low status. You automatically considered humility your place to be because people didn't look up at you. They looked down on you because that was the status that you were born into. You, you were born a slave in the Greco-Roman culture. So what also happened in the Greco-Roman culture, you could be born as a free man. And so those that were born as free men in the Greco-Roman culture would look down on those who were born in humility or born as a slave. And their motto was, I would never want to be born into what they were born into. So there was already some disunity among the unity of humility in Philippi. Then you bring the Hebrews involved in that too. So you have a Greco-Roman culture and a Hebrew culture. The Hebrew culture recognized that everything came from God, that God's the creator of all. And because he is the creator of all things, I am accountable to him. He is a covenant God, so I'm accountable to him. I am blessed because he has blessed me. So therefore, I exhibit humility because of who he is. And he demonstrated that humility to me. Therefore, I'm accountable to God, so I must walk in humility because I don't deserve anything and everything comes from him. So you can see in the church of Philippi that we already have a problem. There would be the tension between the humility that you were born into and those that were born as free men. And then the Hebrew culture would say, hey, we understand this whole thing. So the, the chances of there being a train wreck of disunity in Philippi are pretty high. So the apostle Paul comes along under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, let me give you an incentive clause for living in Jesus Christ. Because he breaks through all the cultural chaos and he begins to do things that you would not normally have seen done because of his relationship with us in Philippi. And so we're in Christ. So when you think of the incentive clause, you kind of have to think of Marcus Golden. 
think he's a linebacker for the Giants. A couple of weeks ago, he sacked the quarterback. And in his clause, he had an incentive clause in his contract that if he got 10 sacks on the year, he would be paid a million dollars. The problem was he was credited for half a sack. But then the replay showed and they turned the call over and they made it more in his favor and they gave him credit for a whole sack. Well, that meant a really big deal for Marcus Golden because he has a a, a 10 sack. If he gets 10 sacks, he had nine and a half. If he gets 10, he gets a million dollars. It's an incentive clause. So yeah, yeah, I want to be an athlete. I I, want to have an incentive clause that, that my performance is based on that which is going to be given to me. So I perform and do the things that I do and behave a certain way because I have an incentive and the incentive is that I would do this and then they'll pay me off. Now watch this. In Philippi, that's not the incentive clause. The incentive clause in Philippi is that Jesus Christ has showed up. And because he has shown up and he has put life into people who were dead, that's enough incentive for me to live for him and for those in Philippi to live for him. So if you're looking for me to give you like 10 things today so that you can be better in 2020, I'm telling you that's not where it is. This is not a do better message. There is no do better message. It's a repented message and it's a repented message that means this. You and I cannot do better. We cannot try harder. We cannot perform better. But the incentive clause is this. If we are in Christ, then everything that he is is now in me. And so the incentive is that I love him and I worship him. And because of that, these things that we're going to talk about flow out of a well and a reservoir of him being true in my life. This is what Paul says. Here's the incentive clause. The word if, you'll see it like four times in the verse. The word if is a first class conditional if. The word if should be translated since. So let's read it like this. Therefore, since you have consolation in Christ, since you have comfort of his love, since you have fellowship of the spirit, since you have affection and mercy, that's where Paul starts. So the incentive clause is all wrapped around being in Christ. Circle the phrase in Christ. So being in Christ means this, that we used to be located in a sin relationship because that's what we were born into. We we are located in a sin relationship. When we become in Christ, he relocates us or translocates us or transports us from a sinful relationship into a saving relationship. And this is not a spatial relationship. Like when you go into your garage, you have tools in your garage. So that would be spatially. Spatially, you have tools that are occupied inside your garage. When you go into your closet, you have clothes that are hanging in your closet. When you go into your living room, spatially, you have furniture in your living room. They live inside that house. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying the incentive clause is not spatially, it's relationally. He says, because you're in a relationship with me, all these things that are true of me, which is encouragement, comfort, fellowship, affection, and mercy. Because those things are true of Christ, they're now true of me because I've been relocated into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the incentive clause. So in our church, the incentive clause is not do this, make this happen, be a better person, be the new you for the new year. It's this, repent, realize that you can't do it. God in you can do it. Realize all the encouragement that he's given you and now he wants to flow that through your life. Think about that. Encouragement. Some of you need encouragement. 
Discouraging year 2019 was a discouraging year. You want encouragement? Here's the important thing. Get the God of encouragement in you. Here's what he says. Since there is encouragement in Christ, that's what the word consolation means. It's a word in the Greek, and I have good software, it's parakaleo, and it means to come alongside someone. That's what the word encouragement means. So if you're discouraged today, God is not discouraged. He does not live in discouragement. If he lives in you, then he has come alongside you and he has encouraged your spirit. So what Paul says for unity to take place and community to take place in the body of Christ, there must be an encouragement in Christ. So all the encouragement that God has poured in me and all the encouragement that he's poured in you, anything short of hell is grace. So if you've received grace today through faith in Jesus Christ and you have a relationship in Christ, you should really be encouraged today, no matter what situation you're going through, because you won't spend eternity in hell. You'll spend eternity with God because you're in Christ. You have been relocated in a relationship that you don't deserve. And anything short of hell is grace. And that's what Paul's saying. So it means to move alongside somebody. So there are people in the body of Christ who need encouragement. So if I'm going to live out Philippians 2.1 and others are going to be important, then I have to be called by God to come alongside somebody, a brother or a sister who is hurting. But I can't be called alongside to a brother or sister who's hurting if I never open up my eyes and see the people around me. See, the God of encouragement will give you spiritual eyes to see people around you that need you to come alongside and encourage them. That's what the word means, parakaleo, to call alongside. John and I right here, we, he played basketball at Rayburn. He's 6'5". I'm 6'4". Are you 6'5"? Okay. I was 6'5", but when I lost my hair, I lost two inches. So anyway, the idea is, it's like in basketball when we played basketball. We would have cheerleaders that would encourage us. When we go to the free throw line, sink it, Freeman, sink it. Thank you for the encouragement. You know, I'd make it. So, but somebody was coming alongside me and encouraging me. In the body of Christ, some of you need encouragement. And you're always going, why doesn't anybody ever come encourage me? Let me tell you why. Because you never encourage anybody yourself. If you want to get an encourager inside of you, get Christ in you. And then Christ in you is going to open up your spiritual eyes and your spiritual heart. So when your toe hurts and it really aches, it doesn't ache as bad as somebody else's. So if you'll get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes on Christ, he will encourage himself through you and touch somebody for good. And you can become a cheerleader for somebody. And when you lose yourself, you'll really find yourself because it's all about service. It's all about ministry. If there is no relationship with people, there is no ministry. That's why it's important that you go to an iConnect class. In here, I see you, but I can't help you unless you reach out to me, which is fine. I don't delete all the emails that I say. I'm really not that mean. But if you go to an iConnect class and something happens in your life, a tragedy, you can turn to the person next to you and say, hey, I'm really struggling. I need some encouragement. And they can come alongside you. If you sit in this big auditorium and you're going through a really difficult time, we may not know how to encourage you. But I want to say to you, based on God's word, don't wait for someone to come to you and encourage you. You go and encourage somebody else because God's already encouraged you in Christ. Come alongside them. Look at the text. It says this after that. So we, we encourage people in Christ because God in Christ has encouraged me 
And then, since we have the comfort of his love. So the comfort of his love means, first of all, the encouragement means to show up. That's what encouragement means. When you show up in somebody's life, parakaleo, when, they, when you're called to somebody's life to minister to them, you show up. Now, here's an important thing. I'm backing up to verse, the first word. Um, show up. Here's a good thing. Shut up and serve. Let me tell you, when I went through our very difficult time, my wife and I, guess what people did? They showed up at my house. Guess what? My lawn was mowed because somebody encouraged me by saying, what can I do? What can I do? How can the God of all encouragement encourage me? Well, his lawn's going to grow, so go mow his lawn. I didn't have to ask for food. People showed up and gave us food. That's being sensitive, but you can't ever encourage somebody if you don't involve people in your life. So we can't live as islands unto ourselves. We can't be a church that's all about us. We have to be an other-centered church and a Christ-centered church where God's encouragement through us pulls us alongside somebody. And then the word comfort here means you, some of you are real fearful because you don't have an outgrown personality. You have an ingrown personality. For me, I love to go to parties because that's what I live for. <laughs> My wife has a different personality, and she's like, oh, we got to go early. We got to leave early. We got to leave early. Um, but that's because our gifts are different. And that's not a bad thing. But watch this. When you show up in somebody's life and you're wanting to live out Philippians 2.1, then you not only show up, you speak up. You say, what do I say when I get there? What do, when somebody is hurting, when someone is going through a struggle and I'm supposed to encourage them, what do I say? Listen carefully. Ask him. Ask him what you should say. You don't get it in a book. You don't get it off the internet. You get it from the Spirit of God. He will not only call you alongside somebody, but when he calls you alongside somebody, he'll give you the words to say. You say those words. You speak those words. Now, we have a wonderful pastoral care ministry. If you ever go into the hospital and you let us know, you will be visited. But you know what people do? They abuse the privilege. Here's what they do. They call Rex, because Rex is the pastor over pastoral care. And they say, so-and-so's in the hospital in room 4 for 13, downtown, Methodist, whatever. Just wanted to let you know, and they hang up. Listen to me. If the God of encouragement lives in you, and you want to show up in somebody's life, and you want to speak up in somebody's life, you get in the car, and you go to Methodist Hospital, and when you get to Methodist Hospital, you go to the room, and you put the straw in their mouth, and you speak a word of encouragement to them. Then you call the office and say, just wanted you to know we took care of that. Now, I know that stings, doesn't it? Because I thought, we hire you guys to do that. No, you don't. You hire us to equip you so you'll go do the ministry, Ephesians 4.12. See, it takes all of us. So I'm working myself out of a job real quick here. But I don't care. That's what makes this fun. I just don't care. I care, but I don't care. I don't care about little stuff. Little stuff doesn't bother me, okay? So the idea is pastoral care. So what I'm trying to get you to see is... You're all ministers in this room if you have Christ in you. So find the person, ask God to lead you to the person, come alongside them. And when you get alongside them, step into their life and speak a word of encouragement to them. And let Christ be your mouthpiece and let Christ speak through you. Sometimes it's just a smile. Sometimes it's just a handshake. Sometimes it's just a high five. You do what God tells you to do and you leave it with him. You don't have to come up with words. You don't have to memorize anything. Let Jesus be Jesus in you. He is greater than you. He's stronger than you. He'll produce the words through you. I promise you if you'll yield to him. Then the third thing in verse one, 
if any fellowship of the Spirit. So he's saying, since you have fellowship of the Spirit, okay, we already have the consolation of the Spirit. We already have the comfort of the Spirit. But the fellowship of the Spirit means this, that we have both partaken mutually of the same well. That's what it means. It means that you have dipped your life into the well of Christ, and I have dipped my life into the well of Christ, and together we have fellowship with the Spirit. So what God has tied together in Christ, no man can untie. It's fellowship in the Spirit. Fellowship is moving. Fellowship is moving and entering into someone's life. It's the idea of a moving sidewalk. At the airport, I can look to the right, and I can see someone that's going half the speed I'm going, but the uh, moving sidewalk that they're on is getting them there much faster as I sweat and I run to try to catch my flight. The idea is there's something underneath them that is moving them at a greater pace. The idea in the fellowship of the Spirit is Christ in me, the fellowship of the Spirit. What I can never do in the flesh, He can do in the Spirit. And when He begins to move in my life and in your life, we partake mutually of His Spirit and we both together have a fellowship that's rich and united. Because of him. It's fellowship of the Spirit. So the idea is that we come together, we mutually partake. It would be like eating cake. One time, well, several times, if I sit in front of a cake with a couple of people that I know, um, we can finish the cake. And when we finish the cake, there's no more cake left for anybody else. But here's what I want to say to you in the fellowship of the Spirit, when you and I eat of the cake and the pie of God, there's plenty for everybody. There's never a replenishing that has to take place. There's enough cake to go around for everybody to eat for the rest of their life because he produces the fellowship and he never runs dry and his reservoir is always deep. And so we mutually partake of the reservoir of his grace and then we ask God to spill that out of our lives in fellowship with one another. That's beautiful. We're still in verse one. Then because of that, then, it says since, the word if, since I have affection. So I have affection. The word affection means God produces that into me. So we were singing the song, a good, good father. When I think of a good, good father, I think of someone who's tender. I think of someone who's compassionate. You know who I think about? God. God is a tender, compassionate Father. And when I think of earthly fathers, when I think of myself and I think of all of us in this room who are earthly fathers, we have a smudge on our lens. When we're looking at our earthly father, our earthly father has not always been good. Think about that because your earthly father is flawed. Whatever home you came from, your earthly father is flawed. So sometimes we think that the compassion that we did or didn't receive from our earthly father is the way that God is. And I want you to know God's so far above and so far beyond and so superlative to who your dad was. He is the perfect, perfect father. So the affection that God the Father showed me in Jesus Christ, Paul says when you walk in the Spirit and the fellowship of the Spirit, you have affection toward people. I can love people. I can be affectionate toward people. Some of you may say, I'm not a very affectionate person. Good, God is. Now yield to him. See, some people need not only your comfort, not only your consolation, your encouragement, they need you to show some affection to them. And affection means that you will yield to him and allow God to be God in you. And then he says, look at this, affection and mercy. 
So if I've been extended mercy since I've been extended mercy through Jesus, then I can release mercy through my life. It's a story of a, a, a gentleman who was blind. And he was very bitter and angry in an industrial accident. He, he just, he was injured and he was blind. And he knew he had to go to the school for the blind. And so he went to the school for the blind and he came in, he came in there and they said, there's going to be 10 steps that we're going to use to go up these steps. We're going to go to my office. The instructor said, we're going up the 10 steps. And he said, when you get to the 10 st- up the 10 steps, there's a chair to the right. I want you to sit down. So this instructor said, I'm going to be right by your side. I'm going to, I'm going to walk with you. I'm, you're going to feel me right to your side. So he said, there's 10 steps up. Sit in the chair. He began to talk to him. Began to make this young man feel like um, there was hope for him. And so as this young man began to feel the affection from this instructor and that he cared for him, he said, now we're going to go up to your dorm. We're going to go down these steps and then we're going to make a trail through the garden and go up to your dorm. He said, just follow me. And he would always let him know there's five steps, there's 10 steps. We're going to take a ride. Finally, the young man said, you know what? I didn't think there was any hope for me. But I feel now that there's hope for me. And he said, you know, it's hard for people to know when you're blind what to do. And the gentleman that was the instructor said, I know what it's like because I'm blind too. A person who has received mercy can release mercy and compassion. That's what Paul's saying. Hey, listen, our church could have revival, not our church, God's church here. We could have revival if we lived out Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. We could. But it, goes, it gets better. Verse 2. Fulfill my joy, Paul says. Fulfill my joy of being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. So when he says to fulfill my joy, he's saying um, fill it to the overflowing. It's like filling something up to the brim. I think I told you about this. My father-in-law had a suitcase. He hadn't traveled in a while. And he had a suitcase. He didn't know about the 50-pound rule. He just stuffing all his cowboy boots in there all his uh, texts and stuff. Anyway, he puts it all in there and he puts it on there and it's like 62 pounds or something like that. Lady said, uh, you know, it's going to cost you. She said, you can either get rid of it or pay the fee. Well, he started throwing cowboy boots away, like dumping them in the trash can to get down to the 50 pound rule because what he had was stuffed full to the brim. Listen carefully. When Christ gets in you and Christ gets in me, you can keep cramming and pushing stuff and we get filled to the overflow. Now watch this. And because we are filled to the overflow, Paul says the relationships in Philippi, what will make my joy complete is when I see y'all cramming stuff full and it just keeps overflowing because that speaks of the well of Christ. That's what he's saying in verse two. Fulfill my joy. It's not that Paul didn't have joy in Christ. He was totally complete in Christ. But what Paul was saying is when you guys live in unity and community and you're filled full with Christ, it makes me energized in the spirit. That's what he's saying here. Fulfill my joy. Look at the text. By being like-minded. The word like-minded means a mindset. It means to have an attitude. It's like when you go to the doctor, which I did this last week, and they cut on me. hate that. hate that. So I went to my dermatologist, and I had a certain mindset, and it determined my behavior. In fact, I got a little nervous pulling in, because I knew I had a spot that needed to come out, and it was early stage, so that's good. But I just had a little mindset, so my mindset, my attitude, determined my behavior in the uh, doctor's office. And what Paul is saying, the mindset of like-mindedness, it determines your behavior as a Christian. That's what he's saying here. So be like-minded. 
Having the same love. That's what the text says. Having the same love. What he's saying here is we've all been touched by the grace of God. We've all been touched by the love of God. So the word having means to hold on to or maintain. It means to, in the present tense, to keep on holding on to God because he's holding on to you. And so we continue to hold on to God as he holds on to us. And we continue to have this same love. And we continue to let the love of Jesus spill out through our life because we're holding on to him. Yes, he's holding on to me, but it's a reciprocal relationship. I'm holding on to him. And so the idea is that I am like-minded. I have the same love. What unites us in this room is we've all experience the same grace and love. That's the important thing. Those of us that have trusted Christ, we have the same love. So we hold on to this. It's like going down the Ocoee River in Tennessee, which I did. They said, hold on for your life. It's not like the Guadalupe River. Okay. You know, a little bit of rapids. Be careful here. No, we're talking about category four. So I had a guy die, die, fall out of the raft. They never found him the trip right before I went on the Okoe River. And the guide told me he never came back up. You think I wasn't holding on and maintaining? You bet I was. The idea is in our relationship with God, we hold on. How do we hold on? We hold on to his word. We hold on to the grace of God that has grasped us. And we trust in the sovereignty of God through any situation that God is totally in control. So we have the same love. What that means is to be in agreement. We mind the same thing, that our relationships take priority. So I can look at the brother or sister in this room, and I don't look at you as a threat. I look at you as an opportunity. You should look at me as an opportunity, not a threat. Because our relationships are what keeps us together. It's how we respond to the same love that we've responded to. And how we live out this love is, guess what? In relationship with one another. That's how we live this out. And God has a sense of humor. I've told you this before. About the time you think you're doing well, he'll drop a brother or sister in your life in the form of a parachute, and you'll never be able to live it and love them. And God says, I'm putting this person in your life because I want to show you that you don't have the power to do it apart from me. But if you're like-minded and have the same love, then you can love this brother or sister who's really a trial in your life. Do you have someone? They may be sitting next to you. You may be married to them. This may be your last opportunity. You say, you know what? You know what? You're nudging somebody right now. I get it. Wake up. But listen, the idea is that we are like-minded. We, have, we share in the love of God. And the relationships we have are a priority. Let me explain it to you like this. Because I lived in Tennessee for 12 years, I, um, this was not me, but they worship Tennessee Vols football. We worship a different team here, but they worship another team there. And if you go to Neyland Stadium, you bring all these people, some from the hills of Tennessee, some from the suburbs of Tennessee, some from across the tracks in Tennessee, and you bring all these people who don't even know each other, who get into a stadium that holds 112,000 people, and we act like we're family. I mean, they score a touchdown or they do the power tee, the pride of the Southland band plays the song before the game and the football team walks through the power tee and it kind of unfolds on the field and you've got guys next to you and ladies next to you, you're high-fiving them and you're hugging them and, and you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't even know you. But the reason that we do that is because we worship the same team. So the idea is everybody worship Vols football, so therefore we're a unified group. Someone says, do you know Jerry from Tennessee? Oh yeah, I know Jerry from Tennessee. 
Tennessee. He's my neighbor. No, he's not my neighbor. I've never seen Jerry, but I hugged Jerry because they scored a touchdown. So it's amazing to me if a football team can draw that kind of excitement and that kind of unity and that kind of community. Don't you think Jesus Christ and his family, we could be able to get along and do things together in the power and the Holy Spirit? Think about that. Sure. I don't need an incentive clause. All I need is Christ. Now buckle your seatbelt. Put your tray tables in the upright position. It's fixing to get rough. Verse 3. All right. I'm watching the time. Here's what it says. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let us esteem each other better than himself. So the idea of ambition, selfish ambition, someone who lives in selfish ambition is not concerned about humility. They're not concerned about community. They're not concerned about unity because they worship themselves. They're concerned about themselves. Do you know that sometimes in the body of Christ, we have teachers that teach and they teach not because they want to minister to the body of Christ, because they want people to look at them and give them recognition and give them credit. What a shame to use God's church and God's people to point to yourself. There is nowhere in scripture where we are ever to give credit to ourselves. Paul says, do not live with selfish ambition. Now, if I can explain it this way. So the idea would be this. If you live in selfish ambition, and I'm just going to use pastors as an example. There are pastors all across America that live oftentimes in selfish ambition because if you actually go to their website, if you actually listen to them, everything points to them. And our job as pastors is for not everything to point to us, for nothing to point to us, for us to do nothing out of selfish ambition, for us never to tell people to look at us. We are to get so low and so humble and in such lowliness of mind that we go so flat that people don't see us, they see him. So Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do you know what a lot of pastors do? We drop our resumes at conferences and we want people to sing worship songs to us. I'm just being honest with you. There are pastors that go to conferences, and they don't go to conferences to get equipped. They go to conferences because they want a bigger church with a better budget. God, I hope we don't do that here. Do you know that Sagemont being a flagship church, and our, by the way, I love our team, our search team. They'll do a good, thorough job of vetting. But don't kid yourself. There are people that want to go to a bigger church and a bigger budget and Sagemont's on the radar. Watch this. You know why? Not so they can serve God's agenda and his purposes, so they can serve their agenda and their purposes and everybody can point to them and say, oh, you're the pastor of Sagemont now. Listen to me. May it never happen. May we never live as pastor and people in partnership that anything points to us. I don't ever want you to see me. I want you to see Christ in me. I don't ever want to see you. I want to see Christ in you. Because if you see me, you'll never be impressed. If I see you, I'll never be impressed. But when I see Christ in you and you see Christ in me, I'm thoroughly impressed with him. Let's just worship him. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, lowliness of mind. The only way you can lift God up is if you're low. He needs to increase and I need to decrease. That's what the text is saying. So Paul says, listen, if we're going to have unity in Philippi, Paul's saying, if we're going to have unity here at Sagemont, none of us can live for ourselves. None of us can look out for number one. We have to say, God, use me, but don't use me to put me on the pedestal. You be on the pedestal. That's what he's saying here. 
And we do it in humility. And then he says, let each esteem, coming to the close, let each esteem others better than himself. So if I'm going to esteem others better than myself, I'm going to have to take my arms that are wrapped around myself and I'm going to have to go like this and say, it's not about me. It's never been about me. I want to say this clear. It's not about you. It's about Christ. Listen, I've been in the ministry for 30 plus years. I've seen a lot of antics in the Christian faith. I have lived for myself at times. And I know that me living for myself is a train wreck. And so I want to shoot straight with you. And I want you to go away here with truth. That I want us to lift up Christ. I want us to esteem others better than ourselves. I want us to look for the interest of others better than ourselves. And if I'm going to do that, I've got to open up my eyes to a whole new world and say, God, use me. I am available for you to use me. Because verse 4 says, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. So this is looking out for my own interest. I have my own backpack. The text says, don't just look out for your own interest, but that means that I do have interest. There are things that I can take care of. There's finances that only I can take care of. There's uh, in my family, there's um, there's responsibilities as a husband that, that I have to own and carry the backpack on. I can't shove that out on anybody else. There's responsibilities that I have at this church to do what God has called me to do. So I have to carry my load. And the, verse 4 says to look not only to your own interests. Here's the point. But look to the interest of others. And the thing that we do the best is when we start looking to others, here's what we do. We think that we're supposed to drop our load and go minister to somebody else. That's not what the text says. Here's what the text says. You continue to carry your own load. You don't drop your load in order to minister to somebody else who has a load. You hold on to your load and you be responsible under God for your load. But while you're carrying your load, you minister to somebody else who has a load too. Because they may have a load that's greater than you. So you don't drop your load in order to go minister to them. Together, by grace, you move forward. Some of us, we are just so concerned about our load that we've missed the ministry to other people. Listen, there is no relationship, there is no ministry that takes place apart from the energizing of the Holy Spirit in our life. So together at Sagemont, for grace, let's carry and be responsible for the things that God has placed in our life. Let's carry the backpack of His grace in our life. But let's not drop the backpack in order to minister to somebody. Let's do what the text says. Let's be responsible for our mess that's in the backpack, and let's ask God to help us with our mess in our own backpack and bless somebody else whose mess is greater with their backpack. So while I've got the backpack that's blessed with my own mess, I'm going to come over here and help you because you got a backpack that's got a mess that's bigger than my mess, and the only way I can minister to someone else is if I carry my own load too. Think about that. We have to be responsible for ourselves, but we have to get our eyes off ourselves and trust God. Community and unity come from carrying our own load, but making sure that we're interested in others. Do you know revival could take place if some of you would, as soon as this service is over with, if you'd walk up to somebody that you didn't know and just speak a word to them and introduce yourself? It would. That would be looking after the interest of others. Better yet, what if you invited someone to go to lunch and you paid? 
hey, look out for your own interest, but maybe somebody else needs to be at that meal with you. And maybe by the orchestration of the Holy Spirit of God, you can carry your own load, but you can also bear their burden as well. We need to be a church that looks out for the interest of others. Now, we do that on a pretty good scale, but we're not near where we need to be. So Together for Grace, that's the title of the series, this whole message. Together for Grace, let's be all that God has called us to be. Now, here's the problem. A little further, and I'll close with this. Some of us are carrying a backpack of sin, and this thing is kind of weighing us down. You know, like if you, when you come into this world, you come in born into sin, and so if you start putting all the sins that you've committed in your backpack, it can't hold, you, your backpack can't hold it. And what happens is you begin to try to help somebody, but you can't help anybody because you're weighted down with your own sin. And so the best thing you could do today is say, I want to move from a sin relationship into a saving relationship, and here's how you do it. God wants to carry this backpack for you. He wants to take all of your sin cast it as far as the east is to the west. And so what you need to do today before you can hold your own backpack and help somebody else who's carrying their backpack is you need to give your backpack to God and say, God, that's how I cast my cares upon you. Some of you are weighted down with sin. The only way you can release the sin and the guilt and the shame is coming to a saving relationship with Jesus. And the way that you do that is you just put all your faith and trust in him. Here's what many of us do. We say, God, I give you my heart. I trust you. I give you this burden. And we go right back and we pick up the very thing we just threw. If we had a prayer time at the end, some of you would come and you'd drop the backpack of the burdens right at this altar. But you know what you'd probably do? Because you're like me, you'd pick it right back up and take it to your seat. The best thing we can do is let go and let God, right? Just let go today. Something in your life something in my life. Just let go and let God take it. And then when God takes your sin and he buries it in the sea as far as the east is from the west and he forgives you and he washes cleansing over your life, then when the Bible says to carry your own load, you got it because Christ is in you. He's your encourager. You can put on the backpack of your load and then you can also carry that backpack and minister to somebody else because it's Christ in you. But until Christ comes in you, that load is going to be on your shoulder but it doesn't have to be.